0: Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland area attorney and Republican factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay. Hey, good morning, Mike. How you doing this morning? I'm I'm better than
1: a veganity a Cory Booker uh, luncheon buffet.
0: <laughs> oh, I like that one. That that's a good one. Uh, yeah. Well, I I'm 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 getting by. I am here, and uh, you know, one thing I wanted to say before we get started with our show this week is, while we don't have any new supporters this week, I really want to thank all of our current supporters, as well as to let you know that if you're not currently supporter. Uh, a supporter and you feel what we do is important and you know you have a few extra bucks kicking around we would definitely appreciate your help this is obviously not a big dollars operation and so every contribution whatever size really does make a big difference to us and of course you know you don't don't just get our thanks when you support the show there's all kinds of stuff you can get like the weekly bonus show that Jay and I will be doing after this show and the weekly quick take uh, Kristen's doing it this week and a bunch of other things and to check it all out just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can go to politicsguys.com support. Okay, so Jay, I thought, you know, we'd start off this week with where probably everyone expects us to start off with the third Democratic presidential, uh, I call them cattle calls, but I guess the debate is the term that we use uh, very loosely. But of course, sure. this, yeah, this was, you know, the first one. That featured all three of the top-tier candidates, Biden, Warren, and Sanders, on the same stage, along with, you know, a bunch of other people trying to break out of the pack. Uh, As always, there were a few memorable lines. I got to say, Jay, and I think you'll like this too. My favorite was Joe Biden saying, let's be constitutional in response to uh, Kamala Harris's proposal to limit assault weapons through executive action. I thought, wow, th- there's a line right. that Biden, Carson and Baranowski can all agree on, you know, which right. is how well, often... sort, of, sort
1: of a low bar. We're, yeah. we're talking about getting over there. <laughs> exactly.
0: But... Yeah. But, you know, but but more seriously, to me, it was health care that most clearly laid out the divisions, not only between the candidates but also the larger divisions within the Democratic Party. Of course, we have Biden representing the party centrist. He believes that Medicare for all is, you know, too much and too expensive and that we'd be better off building on Obamacare. On the other hand, you have Warren Sanders and the more progressive Democrats who feel that now is the time to push for a much more ambitious system. I actually thought that Pete Buttigieg's comment on this was, you know, sort of representative of his trying to find kind of a third lane to occupy i'll call it the pragmatic progressive lane which is i guess how i like to think of myself and i kind of like that phrase but anyway at one point and uh, I, which i would consider an oxymoron but oh, yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly but at one point buddhij said if we're right as progressives that the public alternative is better then the american people will figure that out for themselves and i thought yeah i've I'm I'm down with that. But uh, but anyway, uh, what do you think? What did you think about the debate, Jay? What's your takeaway?
1: Um, you know, I, I think, look, does this really move the ball or change things one way or another? I think there's there's uh, an argument that can be made that except among, you know, real policy wonks uh, like yourself, um, drawing a line between Pete Buttigieg's um, position on health care. Uh, and Elizabeth Warren's—it's—it's sort of a a fine line to draw, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and a lot of these, I think you're you're sort of looking at it's uh, to to me the view it it tends to be. And again, this is this is viewing it not as a a, a Democrat uh, but as an outsider um, that it's it's sort of Biden and everybody else.
0: Well, yeah, um, I, yeah, I think and Biden- everybody
1: is everybody is sort of like just scrambling to be that the 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 Biden alternative as we yeah. as we get down to that okay i think um, in the
0: biden alternative because essentially we have we have the uh the centrist camp which is uh, seems to be at this point almost locked up by biden then maybe we have some centrist in the background who sort of hope that biden will implode or explode right. or there'll be some kind of plosion and then of course we have the progressive camp and right now it seems like warren ascendant and sanders sort of you know hanging in there basically
1: yeah yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the, it's look, the, the the race is going to come down to, I think, uh, Biden and somebody else. And yeah. it's just the question of who's yeah. going to be that somebody else uh, and who can who can jockey themselves far enough up and the, uh, the progressive uh, mm-hmm. wing to be that person.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so it's, to some extent, I mean, I, I think, you know, policy differences don't matter that much. You know what I mean? Because they're they are sort of slight. At least they seem sort of slight between uh, between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, and a, you know, there's also the um, um, what conservatives like to to make fun of, and and I will uh, sort of the bidding war that goes on uh, in these that uh, you know each. Uh, each each candidate says, "Well, listen, I'll commit, you know, w- you know, one trillion dollars to this. while well, the next one will commit five. That you know, and then up to up to Bernie Sanders, who I think his his plans are something like sixteen trillion, uh, for a whole, you know, revamp of the U.S. economy.
0: Except um, except one thing that's different about this though is." we see, especially in Biden pushing back hard against that, you know, coming out flat out and saying, this is too expensive. We can't do this. This is too extreme. And so Biden represents kind of a very, you know, a big change from that kind of bidding war. I mean, you're right. Certainly there's some of it on the progressive end, but it's, you know, and I can understand where you would say, well, it's all just, you know, different varieties of awful, but for people on the left, this is, this is a pretty big, a pretty big distinction, you know, I think to make. But but
1: more. Well, ju- I, I don't oh, know. I mean, I, but I'm but I'm saying in in terms of those that are are the the progressive wing. Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. I don't I don't think yeah. that I think that's where the bidding war is going on.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Right? If
1: you if you if if you're into the bidding war mentality, you're not a Biden voter to begin with.
0: Yeah. I, I yeah. I think I think is, you're right about that. Though I think progressives would see it not so much as a, a bidding war but as just kind of a move toward a system of uh greater equality and social social justice and so forth and that means you know that means maybe raising taxes and putting a few more restrictions more than a few more restrictions on those that have right. to help but, but out. imagine
1: how much more social justice you can get for an extra <laughs> for five trillion that's more true. than the no. other guy a- the other a- guys. A- and
0: you say that obviously jokingly but you know that's I think that's a you know that's an important point to make in a, in, a, in a real sense. But again, I agree with you more broadly that we're unlikely to see a whole lot of movement. There are nine more debates to go, I think, and, and five of those, I believe, happen. Yeah. Five of those, though, happen before the Iowa caucuses on, I think it's February 3rd. And that, to me, that's going to be the, the thing. If anything moves the needle, it's going to be Iowa and then New Hampshire, and we'll see about that. But, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't necessarily expect big things. There, there were a couple of other points that I wanted to bring out. First off, about that uh, you know, division within the Democratic Party, uh, I read something interesting, in, and you wouldn't have seen this, in Vox uh, of, of all places, which I would hardly call the, the, the beating heartbeat of the center left. But they right. essentially made the argument that you know most Democrats are, according to polling, are much more moderate than Sanders or Warren, and they don't really want a lot of the stuff that Sanders or Warren is saying. And so uh, you know that, that that needs to be considered in, in moving forward on this. And I thought, wow, Vox is, is saying that. Of course, that's what I've been saying all along, and so it's it's weird. Well, that, I've been saying that too. Yeah, I, yeah. But uh, also, I wanted to point out, you know, I think one of the big lines was, uh, O'Rourke, uh, he, not only did he call uh, Donald Trump a white supremacist, but he said, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15s and AK-57s. And, and the sound you heard after that was of, of almost every centrist Democrat in the country smacking his head, you know, saying, oh God, uh, what in the world did you just do? Right. And I'm sure that was, uh, I'm, I'm sure you heard that. It's like, yes, finally. Yeah. They're finally being honest about what they're going to do. Right.
1: Yeah. No. And I think that's uh, uh, I, I think that's that's again the problem that um, you know the, the Democrats are going to have uh, going forward is you've got um, you know I, I guess I guess what what will happen eventually is Biden will be sort of called upon to disavow that, right? Yeah. To to reassure folks if he's going to be the if he's going to be the, um, the the nominee. Um, but a couple more things about about Biden that I think are are a little bit you know, because <laughs> troubling is, is, is there were some more sort of goofy sort of Bidenisms? uh, record that,
0: player. You think about the record player, well, the, re-
1: the, record play- this, the record player, the record player, that can be sort of forgiven. And that's kind of like a, that's almost kind of quaint, uh, old fat, you know what I mean? It's, it's almost endearing. Um, but the, uh, nobody should be in jail for a nonviolent crime. Um, uh, to which Paul Manafort and, uh, said here, here, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know um uh, also the you know we didn't lock people up in cages and didn't separate families in the obama administration uh when in, when in fact they did um and and the, the part of this is of course that he's he's getting this um getting then the, the the flack from the the left the right doesn't even have to do anything on no, it no i mean uh, i mean you you're
0: right on that in that Joe Biden, of course, wants to have it both ways. He wants to uh, take credit for all the successes. But whenever, you know, someone pushes back, says, well, you know, I was I was just the vice president. Uh, well, what was I supposed to do? I don't and, know what this guy said. Yeah, yeah. I, but, I, really but, I mean, the at the that, yeah. when he was pushed when he was asked directly about that. He said he stands behind everything. But, of course, I mean, as a as a strategy, both, you know, rhetorical and campaign, uh, of course, that's the that's the approach you're going to take you know, and, uh, and so, so I get that, but you know, all the other thing about Biden, of course, Castro tried, tried to attack Biden on age and it, it seemed to fall yes. almost entirely flat. Uh, and I really think both the Castro thing and the, yeah, Uruk-
1: did, you, did you remember what you said two minutes ago yeah. or something like that? Exactly. If that had ever happened to uh, a Republican, uh, making that kind of comment, um, uh, the media would be, would be aghast with, uh, the you know, the blatant uh, ageism and so forth.
0: Well, no, but that was, that was what happened in this case. In fact, a lot of people said that it was a, it was a, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it didn't come up in the Wall Street Journal, but absolutely. in a lot of the mainstream media was said that, you know, Castro was the one who was in the wrong. His uh, his comment was actually off base and he was the one who didn't seem to understand it. So it looked like he was just simply okay. looking for an opportunity to slide in a cheap shot about age. And so there was a lot of pushback on that. And uh, to me. This kind of gets back to my you know my argument that you have people like O'Rourke and Castro who are just hanging out in the low single digits and they're trying to do something anything, and this is the kind of stuff that happens, and I think what what ends up happening is it potentially damages the party and the nominee because they they are laboring under the delusion that they still have a shot at uh, the nomination, which I think I just I just don't see that happening honestly, I think right now there well, are. There are maybe five people with anything approaching a shot. I mean, obviously you have Biden, Sanders, Warren, and then you can say, well, maybe lightning strikes and we have a uh, uh, you know uh, Harris, Booker, and yeah, maybe Buttigieg. But maybe that's my you know hope more than my analysis. But essentially, after that, the rest of them. Uh, they might as well just jockey for vice president or try to, you know, set up their, I don't know, uh, CNN or, or MSNBC consultantships or what have you, because just it's just not going to happen for them. And, you know, you have Andrew Yang well, saying, be... what, I'm going to give a, a, doing this weird giveaway program, $1,000 if you send in yeah. your story. I, you know, that's just, <laughs> that's just crazy talk, obviously.
1: Well, well that, and that sort of goes to... Um... A question I was going to ask you. I mean, to what extent do you think all these these folks really think they're in the race to be the nominee, and to what extent are they just jockeying for something else?
0: Well, I think because I I know I know
1: in in Republican fights, I mean, lots of times there is there is sort of the sense of um, you know you're you're floating trial balloons and you're just trying to get uh, your name out there, and maybe you get tapped for a a cabinet position uh, or or something else. But
0: I think that there are enough people in the race who have taken their understandable concerns about Joe Biden's age and slip ups and, and and history to to sort of argue, at least in their own minds, that, hey, Biden could stumble. And if he does, I can be there to sort of be the person to stand in. I think that's probably Booker's strategy. I certainly mm-hmm. think that's Buttigieg's strategy now. It's obviously Klobuchar's strategy. So there are a few people I think maybe can see things playing out that way, and it's not entirely unreasonable. But for the others, I mean...
1: Buttigieg, uh, Booker, and Klobuchar also would have, and I'm, I'm going to say this, and, and to be sort of sort of blunt, and probably people will take offense with this, but... Um, there, there's sort of a, each of them brings a diversity piece to it. Yeah. Right? And Harris,
0: I should so I, I to mention Harris, Harris, but yeah. Uh,
1: but, but that would be a, a, you know, a, Hey, uh, and again, it's, it's, it's sort of the irony of the, well, we won't, you know, vote for this person for uh, the actual presidency, but, but for the sake yeah. of diversity, we'll have them on the ticket and uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, sure. No, absolutely. Uh, so, but, but those, so those, those, those have something to bring to a ticket that, uh, uh, say, a, you know, Sanders or a Warren would not. Right. Yeah. And I don't think you could have any kind of a Biden-Sanders or Biden-Warren ticket um, just because of well, not to say that that Warren wouldn't bring diversity as, as a female, but uh, just that the, I think there would be the two. Two egos, sure. the two yeah. I don't think you can. Well,
0: there there's a lot of talk about if Biden gets the nomination, maybe Abrams is his vice president, and that obviously brings in you know a, a very popular, a very popular person in a state that the that the republic. Sorry, the, the Democrats would like to pick up Georgia, and there's you uh-huh. know the diversity issue and that sort of thing. So, and how's you know. doing that race? What that? she came awfully close in a, in a red state. So that's how she did in that yeah. race, Jay. Um, All right. But, you know, a couple other things before we move on is uh, there was one comment that I wanted to get your thoughts on. At one point, Bernie Sanders called Donald Trump the most dangerous president in the history of this country. Um And I think you can make a reasonable case for that. That's not to say that. I think that democracy is getting ready to crumble into authoritarian strongman sort of rule or anything like that. We'll see what happens if Donald Trump loses the election, but... uh... Well, what do you what do you think? Of, what do you think about that? I mean, is that a would you say that's a ridiculous thing? Or if you kind of I don't look know, back, I mean,
1: I, I'm not sure exactly how how you how is he defining dangerous? Yeah, I mean, I mean not, in one sense, yeah. there's sort of the, like the cold, the cold, cold war dangerous tape, right? That this is the guy who's going to push the button and blow up the world. Well, okay, that's one kind of danger. Is it this a danger that we're going to lapse into some sort of authoritarianism? Uh, in that case, I would say the, the better, the better example would be, say, a Woodrow Wilson. Um, but, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, but I, I mean, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm, uh, or, or even, you know, look, FDR, a guy who was, you know, almost, you know, essentially president for life. So basically Democrats, um,
0: you're saying are the dangerous ones. Well,
1: no, no, I'm, I mean, if, if you could, I mean, you could obviously, you could make an argument that, Nixon. that look, Lincoln, Lincoln suspended habeas corpus and, and, you know, so I'm
0: thinking maybe um, Nixon, uh is that 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 madman strategy that they were you know and of a foreign policy and uh yeah again, and uh, that goes Trump... that goes
1: more to like the, the cold war type type thing of uh, you know was he going to start world war three sure. versus is he going to take over the country and somehow can uh uh, uh you know destroy our, our democratic institutions sure um sure uh, absolutely my, my my sense is that that probably there's there's no one man who's good enough or able to do, I don't mean good enough, I mean, skilled enough, powerful enough to, to do something like that. Um, if there was, I would have to think that the most dangerous president would also have to be one who is exceedingly popular.
0: Oh, that makes sense. Right? Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, And, and I don't yeah. think Trump is. No, yeah, that's, that's a great, that, point. that's
1: why I would put like an FDR as a, you know,
0: I see what you're saying. Yeah. In that sense. Yeah. I, I, I think you, uh, you have a point. Um, one other thing before we move on, I asked Trey this the last time he and I did the show together, and I really wanted to ask you before I, before I forget my long-term memory is not what it used to be. So, uh, which of the democratic candidates do you think would be toughest for Donald Trump to beat? And which do you think would make the least bad president? Uh, Joe Biden. Okay, for both of those questions, I yeah. I, I kind of thought that would be your answer and so so yeah, I I uh I think I agree with you on both of that's, those. That's
1: that's that's not an endorsement. No, <laughs> mind no. you, but Well, um, I, I
0: I'm still a little torn. I mean, I I I've I've raised my concerns about Joe Biden before and there are a lot of things about uh Pete Buttigieg and Cory Booker that I quite like. Uh so, but but yeah, anyway. And
1: and I'm also going to to qualify this a little bit by saying um the the president the the who the president is uh is is important uh, uh the people the president brings with him and surrounds yes. himself are, yeah. are almost equally more important uh, or equally if not more important um point. so i mean i i i could live with a uh biden flubbing things and, and maybe be not you know not quite as sharp as as he may have been uh in his youth uh provided he's got a you know, solid bunch of centrist people who just want to keep the economy humming, and, and you know and that, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, as opposed to someone who's coming in with a idea of you know socialist remaking of of the country.
0: I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah. All right. Well, we will definitely be revisiting this. I think the next debate is uh, mid October, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that one as well. So anyway, uh, moving on. It was a big week for immigration policy uh, at the beginning of the week. Uh, federal Judge Stephen tegar uh, reimposed a nationwide injunction on the Trump administration's asylum law regulation. That That's the one that automatically denies asylum in the U.S. to any applicants who've passed through a third country without applying for asylum there. But that ban was overturned by the Ninth Circuit, which said that it could only apply to states that fell within the Ninth Circuit. But Tigar then reimposed the nationwide ban on Monday And he based that on the Ninth Circuit's language that groups bringing suit against the the asylum change hadn't provided enough evidence to warrant a nationwide ban. He obviously concluded at this point that they had. But then the Trump administration (coughs) asked the Supreme Court to rule on this directly, which bypassed the normal process of having the Ninth Circuit rule first. And that's something we've seen more than a few times from the Trump administration. And then the court, in a short unsigned order, overturned the injunction in its entirety. Now, before we go any further on this, Jay, you're the attorney here, obviously. And even though you've explained this before, when this has happened in other cases, I thought it would be good to just kind of go over this again briefly. Can you remind everyone of what this sort of action does and doesn't mean? Sure. The way the way injunctions
1: work uh, is that so typically, you you put together your your suit or your claim, saying that in this case, you know this policy is somehow uh, unconstitutional, flawed, how you know, however, um, whatever whatever the legal deficiencies uh, of the policy are, um, and you say, and in this case, uh, we're eventually going to have a, a decision on the merits, of trial, and and evidence and so forth, but the the Issue is such that uh, if the court does not step in and stop this from from going into effect, uh, there will be parties who will suffer irreparable harm. Uh, and it also that what you need to show is that you have a high likelihood of success on the merits. Uh, and there are some other findings about how third parties won't be harmed, and it's sort of in the public interest to do this. So you go in and seek the injunction sort of on day one and say, look, look, court. Uh, we're going to get to this on a full hearing on the merits, but right now we need you to to put a stop to um, whatever this is, whatever the, this this policy uh, is. Uh, so, in an injunction hearing, you know, the hearings for injunctive relief are necessarily sort of like truncated, um, you know, sort of quick mini trials almost, right? It's it's not a full hearing of of the case, uh, and the court is looking at one: are there going to be uh, irreparable harm to someone? Uh, and two, is there a high likelihood of success on the merits, uh, such that they can, you know, they feel they safe, safe enough, you know, to go ahead and issue this this prejudgment relief, as as it were, right. um, uh, pending a, a final determination on the merits. So that's what you have to to show. Um, and then what what happened, of course, in in this case, was uh, Judge Tegar had issued this nationwide. Now I should also say, typically, the way that uh, injunctions work, and courts work in general. Is you've got jurisdiction over your jurisdiction, right? Um, meaning, uh, Judge Tigar uh, is a judge of the uh, Southern District of California, uh, so his orders would take effect and and rule or or, or govern over the, the Southern District of California. Right. Uh, he would not uh, ideally be able to issue orders for places like Texas and and other places, and you know the whole country. Now, there are situations where there can be nationwide injunctions, but the they're, they're showing needs to be sort of higher, and, and there's there's sort of a sense of that mm-hmm. this is the only way that the parties can have relief is if it's a nationwide injunction,
0: right.
1: Um, right. Uh, that, that somehow something anything less would be um, inadequate relief mm-hmm. for the parties.
0: Yeah, and uh, I just want to say the reason I wanted you to go over this, because there's been a lot of what I would. But I guess we characterize sort of as misreporting. I mean, uh, uh, Vox's headline on this was Trump's win at the Supreme Court is a devastating blow to the U.S. asylum system. And I thought, well, wait a second. They just they just removed an injunction. And so we haven't even heard anything on the merits. And I just wanted to to, to remind people of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Well, and the other the other um, thing that's interesting about this, of course, originally went then to the Ninth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit affirmed as to the injunction as to California right uh or or to that district saying yeah that's fine uh but then said but look we don't see that the, you know there's an alleged harm that that justifies this nationwide injunction right right um and 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 it's so they sort of i mean i i'd, I'd have to look back at the opinion where they actually remanded it but essentially there was the message of judge tegar well look you didn't you didn't show your work
0: right mm-hmm. as far as yeah.
1: the nationwide injunction yeah. failed to discuss the alleged harm um so then he came back and sort of did the do-over, saying, "Well, the nationwide harm that I see is is some of these these agencies or groups that help um, uh, refugees, uh, asylum seekers, would have to redesign the templates for their forms and and that sort of thing." Which again, the Supreme Court apparently was just not buying as being irreparable harm.
0: Right, and and I think the argument of irreparable harm might be that well, while people are waiting uh, for or people who can't apply for asylum in the United States are in some pretty uh bad potentially situations in mexico and there have been a lot of reports of course of you know about uh crime and gangs and all that sort of thing and so those people uh would you could argue suffer irreparable harm but that clearly was not an argument they're not the plaintiffs ah okay gotcha gotcha okay that's yeah. a good point so that's because yeah. it's the plaintiff. okay yeah because in this Great case point. the point the, the yeah
1: the plaintiffs the yeah it's it's brought by um now, I, I shouldn't say that. I mean, there may have been folks who've, who've jumped on, but um, the, the suit was mainly brought by um, uh, immigrant rights asylum seeker groups that essentially were saying, look, listen, we can't perform our mission um, because, right. uh, because, right. this, yeah,
0: so that's a great point. And this is this is why one of the many occasions why I'm glad that you're an attorney. Yeah. Anyway, um, now there was a dissent Two justices signed on to it. Uh, it was written by uh, Justice Sotomayor and joined by Justice Ginsburg. And, and Jay, there was one particular part of the dissent that I wanted to get your take on. Uh, Sotomayor wrote the court sidesteps the ordinary judicial process to allow the government to implement a rule that bypassed the ordinary rulemaking process. Uh, what do you think about that?
1: Well, I mean, that's that's sort of a one. I think maybe jumping a little bit ahead on the merits, right? Um, and
0: because I think I think her I, point I, I guess, here. I mean, I
1: guess her point. Her point is it should have gone to the Ninth Circuit yeah. again before it came the Supreme Court. Um, and and I'm I'm not I'm not entirely uh, unsympathetic to that argument, mm-hmm. right? Um. Uh, but there, there is also something to the the effect that I think the Supreme Court needed to say something um, about nationwide injunctions to get yeah. to get the message out, and I think they did so appropriately. In this sort of, you know, the the uh, the, the there wasn't really an opinion, a majority opinion. Uh, it was just a stay granted, right? Um, with a with a dissent. Um, so I mean, we we would assume that this is you know a seven to two decision um uh and and again it it the decision itself didn't really uh, go to the merits now look it's 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 uh it is unusual to to leapfrog that directly to the Supreme Court. uh, but the Supreme Court, at least seven justices apparently felt it was significant enough that it merited their attention, although because we they don't they could have they could have easily said, look we we're not going to take this, go to the ninth district, right. go to the ninth circuit,
0: although we don't necessarily know that it was seven justices who agreed with that. We'll, all we know is that there were Correct. only two justices signed to that two dissent. Two
1: were, who, were, yeah, yeah. Uh, who disagreed enough to dissent. Yeah. yeah.
0: Now, the, the other part of Sotomayor's uh, comment there, or writing there, was talked about the rulemaking process. That kind of gets into the merits of the case, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Now, here's my analysis. Uh, it seems to me that what the Trump administration is is trying to do here with this rule actually does fall outside of its legitimate executive authority. And here's why I think this. If you look at the Refugee Act of 1980... Uh, which is kind of the the legislation that that sort of is behind this, it says that any non-citizen in the U.S. can apply for asylum whether or not at a designated port of arrival and irrespective of immigration status. The only exceptions are listed here are for those who were firmly resettled in another country before they came to the U.S., or if they pass through another country that you, that we have a safe third country agreement with. And that's uh, where another country agrees that refugees or asylum seekers will apply for asylum refuge in that country. They go through first and not where they ultimately want to be presumably. And we right. have a safe third country agreement with Canada. We don't have one with Mexico, though the Trump administration has been pressuring Mexico to enter into one. And so based on this, my conclusion is that the Trump administration is once again trying to bypass the legitimate process, which in this case would mean either A, entering into a safe third party agreement with Mexico, or B, getting Congress to amend the Refugee Act and just trying to basically make it so through executive fiat. And so that to me is 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 Pretty clearly uh, uh, overreach uh, on the part of the executive. What do you think?
1: Uh, I I think that's a good argument. Um, I I don't know whether I'm going to go all in on that at this point, but I, I would say no. That's that's a, a good argument. That look, this is not authorized by the statute, and then you and you cannot fairly find this uh, sort of in in sort of the you know. I don't right. know the the penumbra, you know, yeah, <laughs> of you know, yeah. the, the statute that, that would would allow would allow for uh, some some uh, executive interpretation or or rewriting of the of the rule. Um, that that said, I mean, I think there are there might be I think there's some wiggle room, right? I mean, because agencies get a lot of deference. Sure, there often is, uh, uh, and and especially uh, the executive gets a lot of deference in foreign policy, right? Um. So I, I think I think there's some wiggle room there. So I'm not going to I'm not going to make the call now and and look, haven't read the briefs or anything like that. Sure. But, but no, I, I think that's a that's a legitimate argument. And and, you know, I mean, where I come from on this is that uh, we're better being governed by legislative action mm-hmm. than than the administrative executive action yep. uh, I'm, on I'm, these sort of fundamental policy questions.
0: Absolutely. And I'm right with you so, on that for sure. So, yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, uh, moving on this week, John Bolton either, I guess, resigned or was fired, depending on who's telling the story, as President Trump's national security adviser. Bolton, who, of course, for decades has been one of the uh, hawkiest of hawks, Uh, he clashed not only with Donald Trump, but also with, uh, I guess, really pretty much everyone else in the administration, but maybe most notably Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And Bolton, who took the job in April of 2018, was Trump's third national security advisor following H.R. McMaster and before him, the very brief tenure of Michael Flynn. Short-lived. Yeah, who is is currently awaiting sentencing, which is never a phrase your administration wants to hear in, in relationship to, you know, even past officials. So, uh Jay, what but do you, you think? Know, of, Mike,
1: I, I think I think no one convicted of a violent crime should be in jail. There, there so, you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so there, he, he could uh, wait for a, a pardon for president from yeah, President Biden. Exactly. Um,
0: so, so what do you think about Bolton being? I mean, what's it mean? Do you think, if anything, for President Trump's foreign policy?
1: Uh, I think this actually threw a, a wrench, uh, th- this, this upset a lot of, uh, your, your typical conservative, especially neat, neoconservative type folks. I mean, Bolton was kind of the, the neoconservative dream,
0: yeah. um, mm-hmm. uh,
1: for this, this post, um, uh, in that he, he was a, you know, uh, believer in a strong aggressive uh U.S. foreign policy, uh, a, a a uh outward-faced foreign foreign policy. Um and uh I think um he was sort of a no nonsense clear-headed type um uh you know tough guy. And you, you think on on the one hand that that this ought to be exactly the type of person that Trump is looking for. Uh although Trump would would be more you know, isolationist, or I, I should maybe, maybe the better way to put it is less interventionist um, than than say Bolton would be apt to apt to be. But yeah. um, I but, think a lot of I think a lot of Republicans looked at this as a as a loss of and and you can like Bolton or don't, and I know you don't, but um, as as a loss of some some expertise
0: and not, uh, also yeah.
1: the idea that if, if 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 Trump was if Trump was you know, running this as sort of the this team of rivals thing where he values all these you know inputs and whether he agrees with them or not. uh, It seems to take a dissenting voice out of the room. Um, And then the other the other piece of this is uh, the the topics that at least what we've heard on is uh, the, you know, (laughs) the invitation for the Taliban to come to Camp David, which I think even you'd agree. I I think you'd say that, uh, my God, uh, Bolton got it right on that one.
0: Yeah, Um, you know, I I, uh, right, uh, (laughs)
1: but
0: but but on the other hand, if he did in fact leak uh, uh, information about the meeting, so which which some people claim, and of course he denies that's that you find out that your national security advisor is leaking, well then your national security advisor has to go. I mean, it's it's that simple. I think absolutely. But but, you know, I think even for people who agree with Bolton on policy, and I certainly don't, as you pointed out. he was maybe the wrong person just because he's such an annoying guy. He doesn't play well with others. He's always been this kind of hyper aggressive, self-promoting abrasive sort of person. And so in a way he he's designed to not, you know, put forward those kind of those kind of goals because he can't get along, can't convince people. He's not, he's not good at, he's not very diplomatic certainly. And, uh, you know, I think, from, from a lot of uh, accounts that Donald Trump liked him because he heard him on Fox News kind of vociferously you know, arguing for Trump and, and that sort of thing. And obviously right. that's a bad way to pick your people. But, um, you know, you take a look at say the, the guy who preceded him, HR McMaster, very different sort of guy. I mean, uh, in a way, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, John Bolton was like Donald Trump. It's like he has some ideas in his head and he goes forward. He doesn't want to listen to anyone else. He just kind of plow right through anything. I would argue that's the last thing that Donald Trump needs. He needs more people like McMaster and fewer people like Bolton. And they're, you know, by some accounts, Bolton worked very hard to basically tell Donald Trump. You know, you don't really need a national security team. Just kind of listen to me and we'll just do our thing together. And that'll be that'll be good. And, of course, there's a reason why we have a national security system and not just some guy who talks to the president, you know, and uh, the concern, the larger concern here is that uh, we dismantle this system, at least under Trump, because the president feels like, ah, yeah, I got this. It's fine. And that's definitely what we don't want.
1: Well, I, I would say that the system is pretty big, so I don't think it's going to be dismantled no, by, sure. yeah, that's by, maybe by the one, one guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um,
0: but the president can short circuit the system, I guess. Maybe. Yeah, exactly.
1: The, the president can say, "I'm not going to listen to the, whatever everything else is going on. I'm just going to listen to this yeah. this one guy." And whether Bolton listens to the people who report to him or not, that would that's another question. But yeah, um, I, you know, I would say the, the it, Bolton is is also uh, someone who would probably have, have found a home in most any Republican administration's foreign policy shop, right? I mean I think if if you had had, uh, uh, you know I'd like to Ted think Cruz, a Kasich
0: administration would not Ted have Cruz given him a home. Or, I don't
1: know. I don't know. Um I'd like to but, think so. But but let's, we'll, let's put it this way. I mean I, I think I, I don't think it's 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 certainly not surprising that look if he were to be to occupy some sort of important foreign policy role and so um and I guess he, it's it's seen as this this was someone that, um, again, you can agree with John Bolton or disagree, but but you know where he's coming from, and he oh, yeah. represents a, a a distinctive point of view, um, and sometimes that in foreign policy is is good to have that sort yeah. of clarity. And the look here's what we're about, here's where we're coming from, um, that clarity. Yeah,
0: and uh, you know, it, uh, it's as, not as
1: opposed to, as opposed to the Trumpian sort of well, you just never know what sure. I'm going to do. Yeah, if, yeah, really off balance.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, it's not like Mike Pompeo, uh, Bolton's main kind of uh, foil in this was, is any kind of a dove or anything like that. It's just that it it does sound like it
1: was more, less ideological and more just personality driven.
0: Yeah. To a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. And, uh, you know, I I think, I I think this gets back to a point. I
1: mean, here's the thing, but but what are you going to do though, if, if, if you know that if the president's saying, hey, I think it's a really good idea to invite the Taliban to Camp David uh, the week of 9-11. Um,
0: well, you don't leak I, it. You, know, I, you don't leak right. it. You, you, you uh, mention and we, and, we and we don't know that he did. No, that's true. I mean, but you, I, mean, I mean, what, what you the do. The understanding
1: is that he, he offered to resign.
0: Yeah. And, and I Trump think...
1: said, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Yeah. And then Trump said he's fired. <laughs> and,
0: and who knows, yeah, what happened there. But, yeah. you know, this gets back, I think, to a point you made earlier in the show now it's pretty clear that donald trump is just not a policy guy and that's that can actually be you talked about this i think in relation to biden in a sense that that's not necessarily fatal or even all that bad if you
1: have the right people around you you
0: need the right people you need the right systems around you because the job is way too big for one guy going by his gut no matter how smart that person is and i think you agree with that so all right moving on Uh, North Carolina. Uh, Voters went to the polls this week to elect two members of the House of Representatives in special elections for the third and ninth congressional district. Now, nobody expected the third district race to be close, and it wasn't. Republican Greg Murphy kind of cruised to victory. He beat uh, uh, Alan Thomas by over 24 percent. But it was the ninth district race where most of the interest was, including that of, you know, President Trump, who, along with Vice President Pence, made last minute appeals to North Carolina voters to elect Republican Dan Bishop. And Bishop did win, but by just over 2 percent in a state that went for Trump by 12 percent in 2016. Uh, So, Jay, what, if anything, do you think this might tell us about 2020, which is kind of what we're all looking for now at this point? I, I think not
1: a, not a ton, you okay. know, and I know this was, this was looked at as, oh, this is going to be the big bellwether and, and so forth. Um, I'm still a believer that all elections are local uh, at, at their, their heart. Um, and, and I think this was, th- this is probably a mirror of what that district is, right? Um, it's not, it's not too far off from what the result was in the last election. Um which you know there there were there were I mean, shenanigans 2018 yeah right 2018 right, yeah, yeah. There, there were shenanigans that then caused the uh the the winner to have to withdraw and then the, the special election um but it's it's like those shenanigans did not uh impact the race all that much and I think we we probably end up with sort of the same place we were last time um and by shenanigans I, it, you it, mean
0: like vote I think right yes, isn't it yes, yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> okay just to be um, clear
1: so uh, you know, I,
0: a couple of things, and I think you've mentioned this before when we talked about other uh, special elections is oftentimes it, it's dangerous to draw conclusions because special elections are, well, special. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, one thing that wasn't mentioned in a lot of media accounts, I was surprised. I really had a dig for this. I went, ended up going to the North Carolina Secretary of State site. Uh, turnout was just over 25 percent. Which, if you look back in 2018... It's good for a special election. Yeah, but, but it's still much lower than a regular election. In, in 20, The yeah. 2018 election turnout out was uh, more than double that. It was almost 53%. Yeah. Not only that, if you look at the spending and the attention, very, very different. Total spending in this race was around $20 million, which would make it one of the most uh, expensive special elections in U.S. history. And you can have these situations where, for instance, right at the end, uh, the president, the vice president, say, can go there because it's the only race. But when you're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, 435 races, not all of those competitive, but if you're talking about, you know, maybe a dozen, two dozen competitive races, that's not the case for either party. And so while I am reluctant to draw any big conclusions, I, I will say, as a centrist Democrat, I see this as a positive sign for centrist Democrats because that, that's what McCready, is I mean, right. he's a centrist who nearly picked off a conservative in a solidly red district, and he totally crushed it in suburban areas. He did even better than he did in 2018. But the big difference was the rural vote, rural vote which came through for Bishop. And it seems like there's a lot of polling that's suggesting that this is part of a larger trend is Democrats are doing better and better in not just in the urban areas, but in the suburban areas. And it's the, it's much bigger rural turnout. That's really helping a lot of Republican candidates. And it's probably what's going to, you know, what, President Trump is pinning his hopes of reelection on, uh, to a certain extent. But I think probably the best uh, analysis of this, at least my favorite one, certainly come came from Republican pollster, Frank Luntz. He tweeted, uh, conservative Twitter celebrating a two point win in a plus 12 GOP district from 2016 is like Michigan celebrating a win over army in double overtime. And I thought that, uh, <laughs> that about nailed yeah, it, Yeah, you know, so, well, uh, so yeah i am I am hopeful for twenty twenty. I think that there's a good chance that Democrats will expand on their majority in the House, and this is just one thing that kind of points me in that direction. Any other okay. thoughts, jay
1: No, I mean again, other than i'm I'm always reluctant to draw conclusions from a special election because no, like you it. said they're they're special and and, and uh, also
0: i I should say that I am cognizant of the fact that the conclusion I am drawing is also the conclusion I would like to draw, and that gives me pause, yeah, yeah. and I think it should, So, uh, but we, we shall see. All right, our Final our final story today, the Food and Drug Administration this week moved to at least temporarily ban flavored e-cigarettes. Now, this, of course, comes in the wake of hundreds of reports of vaping-related lung illnesses, though... I think we should point out that most of these involve cannabis, at least at this point. Right. Um, HHS Secretary Alex Cesar said that the administration plans to clear the market of flavored e-cigarettes. Now, this isn't actually an all-out complete ban. I should explain that the FDA only got the authority to regulate tobacco products in 2009, and this was under the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. They extended this authority to e-cigarettes in 2016, but they allowed existing e-cigarettes to stay on the market pending FDA approval. And this is what's called uh, enforcement discretion. Now, Mm. they set the approval deadline for all these e-cigarette products was initially 2018. But uh, Scott Gottlieb, who was the FDA commissioner at the time, pushed it back to 2022, because at that point, It actually seemed like e-cigarettes might be a good way to help smokers move to a potentially less harmful alternative, which you can make that argument. Uh, But then complaints, you know, about companies like Juul that had massive growth, which, you know, in part was based on, it seemed like indirect, at least, targeting and some direct targeting of kids through fruity flavors and campaigns and that sort of thing. So then the FDA says, oh, maybe we should reconsider this. They moved the approval deadline back to 2021 or up to 2021. Then a federal judge moved it up even further to May of 2020. So right now, companies like Juul can still potentially have their non-tobacco-flavored e-cigarettes approved, but until they are, they'll be off the market under this move by the FDA. Uh, Jay, what's your take on all this?
1: um i'm i'm again i'm not crazy about the government sort of jumping in and knocking out an entire industry uh that's that's any again it's it's an industry that do i particularly care for or no um uh based on uh these health issues that appear to be as you said in the majority related to sort of uh black market as it were uh thc products um as opposed to the um uh, you know the the standard vaping nicotine type products, mm-hmm. um, and again, it, it's sort of there's there's a little bit of a disconnect, right? We're saying that um, on the one hand, well, that's it's these these lung illnesses um, that are the reason we have to do this, but also we don't want kids to, to do the uh, the flavored stuff. Which again, those are both two good reasons, but they're not the same reason, if you know yeah. what I mean, right? And and I would say I would say the one would justify sort of immediate emergency action and shutting down an industry.
0: Uh, the other would seem not to. Um, but, but just to so be that's, clear, that's, the, the FDA does have the, does have the legal authority to do this. They just have chosen yeah. since 2016 to not exercise their authority. Because these, these e-cigarette products are unregulated products that require, under law, this uh, approval by the FDA, so they're unapproved products that require FDA approval, and they don't have it. But the FDA decided back in 2016, well, we'll just leave the market alone. I think making the cost-benefit analysis, saying that well, the benefits of allowing adults to get off of, you know, regular cigarettes outweigh any potential harms but then as the you know as as the we saw the youth vaping thing which has just gone through the roof they said well wait a second we need to reinvestigate this cost benefit and maybe we should not uh we should not uh, have have as much enforcement discretion and just start enforcing this regulation uh as it's on the books
1: right no i'm i'm not i'm not arguing the the authority right uh okay i'm just i'm i'm arguing the, the wisdom of it uh, yeah. um
0: you know so, inter- guess- yeah interesting at the, at the same time, this week the FDA cited Juul for promoting its e-cigarettes as less harmful than regular cigarettes as I think they called it a mitigated risk product, which they can't legally do without FDA approval and of course, the, the sort of irony here is right is that the, the reason I think the FDA pushed back the approval guidelines is because they actually felt that they're probably less harmful at least to you know, at least to current smokers. Um, right, it's and, not the
1: combustion that you get with, yeah. with yeah, cigarettes and carbon monoxide and all that yeah. kind of stuff too. And,
0: and actually, if you go on Juul's website, they are extraordinarily careful to not make anything that's a, a health claim to go right around the edge there and just kind of, you know, skirt that, and, and you know, but apparently this all this relates to what some of their marketing people have said in, in talks and so forth, you know, like, oh, yeah, we're much less harmful and FDA is going to approve it any day now, that kind of thing. And it uh, turns out, you you know, uh, some people have people have phones and things can be recorded and, you know, you don't want to really be doing that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Although I'm, and I'm, I'm looking for the article right now, I should have it, I had it should have had it Heat up uh, earlier but i there was a um and maybe one of our our listeners could could help us but um that i understood that, that some of the major manufacturers like jewel had already pulled um the flavored uh uh packets uh from from general I, circulation I right you couldn't from, just go in and buy when you had to buy it online and there was yeah, a yeah uh some sort of age test now that i don't know how i don't know how rigorous that is it's sort of like are you 18 okay <laughs> you know what i mean yeah uh, but 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 as i understood it that some of these the bigger companies uh weren't selling those you know yeah. retail over the counter anymore anyway
0: but, but, but I think if you look at it from the point of view of a company like Juul, which you know didn't exist even just like a few years ago, practically, right? Right. Uh, w- when they're looking at where their growth is, their growth, their, I mean, their business model is not going to be terrifically successful on uh, uh, trying to get a small percentage of current uh, regular cigarette smokers to switch over to their thing. I mean, their growth, much of their growth has been in has been in youth vaping, they know that. And I think, you know, when they're talking amongst themselves, I, I would find it hard to believe that they're not saying, well, how can we stay within the letter of the law, but, you know, allow the kids to do their vaping? Well, there's, I mean, there's also a question
1: of, uh, again, you get into some some fine line drawing because you can say, well, uh, Budweiser's growth, I mean, they're sort of, are, are they looking at uh, kids who are just uh, turning 21 or are they looking at, at kids who are 17, 18, right, to market their product to? Uh, they would certainly say, no, we want everyone to, to drink responsibly yeah. and once they're at um, the legal age. And I, I think Jewel could make the same argument that, uh, uh, look, I, no, yeah, are we yeah. are we trying to get, uh, uh, you know, 14, 15-year-olds to do this? No. Are we trying to get 18, 19-year-olds?
0: Sure. I I want to make two distinctions here, I think. Uh, Number one is that uh, I think it's harder to make a case that uh, there's anything that's not sort of inherently negative or harmful about uh, uh, inhaling or ingesting nicotine in any way. And I think that's a difference from alcohol. But secondly, is the addictive properties. And what I understand in a lot of cases, what these companies have done has been to ramp up the nicotine level so they can get people hooked. And that's a very different thing than with alcohol. So, I I mean, I'm not dismissing your analogy entirely, but I think that uh, tobacco or or nicotine-type products are a different thing, and it's it's, it's more easy for companies to manipulate and get people kind of hooked in in a way that's, you know, certainly not impossible, but more difficult for uh alcohol uh companies
1: i I think it's i think it's a fair argument um but but then where that where that argument collapses though is the the flavor part of it right i mean if you're hooked on the nicotine does the flavor matter that much and i think you you would then say well you get the flavor to get them to try the first time then they're hooked hooked, and it doesn't matter what flavor they they get exactly exactly Um, but and you know of course i i also i mean my also my sense would be if um uh you know if you are an adult purchasing what is a legal product albeit a legal product that's not good for you well one that um uh you probably shouldn't use um is is a you know if adults want to have the mint flavor or mango flavor or something like that um Mm -hmm. you know who's the government to say no we 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 insist Mm -hmm. that you have the flavor that doesn't taste good yeah
0: um
1: it's almost it's almost like you know look you could you can argue that um uh, well, I mean, I guess it's a different argument for, say, beer with a lower alcohol level, but say scotch, right? Uh, a a you know higher alcohol whiskey type thing. People would would argue that uh, uh, there's, there there were very few there, if if any, uh, uh, health benefits to to having you know hard liquor every day, uh, as opposed to you know a glass of red wine or something. Um, but would that would that justify you know? Well, we're gonna we're gonna make it taste bad. I mean, it just
0: well I mean it's not making it taste bad it's what's added to it to make it uh, particularly <laughs> it's, it's, enticing it's, it's, which is that's which is great Different, You know, if you had mango-flavored, I don't know, gin or something like that, and you kind of right. say, hey, kids. But, you know, uh, there are, in fact, you mentioned the government, uh, you know, saying, well, you can't have this. Uh, you know, this has been, we've seen Michigan, for instance, last week became the first state to ban almost all cigarettes. And uh, I believe in New York, uh, Governor Cuomo uh, said he's going to introduce a bill to ban flavored e-cigarettes. And so we're seeing more of this, I think, is Initially, it seemed like vaping was this uh, uh, annoying, if kind of, you know, not necessarily dangerous alternative to smoking. But now, as we're getting a little more evidence, it seems like, well, maybe not so much. And this is why I think a lot of people on the left, including myself, say this is, you know, this is why we have regulatory agencies. And this is why it was probably a mistake. In the first place, for the FDA to to allow this, you know, have this discretion and just say, well, we'll let you market these things uh, while we while we figure out if they're okay or not. That's just not a good approach, I don't think.
1: What's what's and I know we're we're probably running late on time, but uh, just sort of the the funny juxtaposition of this of of governments uh, stepping in to try to ban both federal and state. Uh, you know, vaping and, and e-cigarettes, while at the same time uh, expanding uh, marijuana access.
0: Well, I think that's I because... I think it's
1: a funny, I think it's a funny sort of, and again, especially when it, it looks like the vaping illnesses seem to be related, at, at least at this point, to THC.
0: Well, I think, I think in, that, in that instance, the argument is that there are, you know, there are arguably some medical benefits to marijuana. In fact, I think a majority of the states that have legalized marijuana, including Ohio, have done it on a, uh, you know, for medical reasons, whereas uh, medical nicotine is not a thing, would be my argument. Okay. But right. of course, then there are all states, you know, like uh, California and uh, and Denver, where you can just kind of light up, you know, whenever, however, not. Well, I and mean, then there's also the, the
1: hemp legalization, which is something else, and we could we could have a, a whole discussion on that someday sure. about how the the hemp legalization laws in many states, including Ohio, have at least for the time, essentially legalized uh, all all marijuana. So,
0: but. Uh, well, I mean, not for not for smoking and, and and kind of that sort of use. Well, but it's 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 created
1: a system where you're uh, unable to prosecute it.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's uh, yeah. not, not, now. See, you're kind of leaving everyone dangling on that. Tune into the bonus <laughs> show, and I'll explain why. Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, well, yeah, in fact, we are running uh, a little long. That's OK. But it's we are going to do more. So as soon as Jay and I are done recording this show in just a minute, we are going to be doing that bonus show. And, and Jay, if you wouldn't mind expanding on that, I hadn't planned on that. But I think that would be really kind of interesting to hear a little bit more about. And uh, maybe we can also talk about, oh, I don't know, uh, the Trump administration finally releasing aid to Ukraine after both Republicans and Democrats said, hey, you know, let's get this going. Um so uh also if you're a supporter at the $5 per month uh and above level, uh Kristen has a politics guys quick take for you, and we'll have all that ready by the time you hear this. Uh and if you're interested in getting access to all that, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. If you want to get in touch with us, we're at mail at There's our Facebook page, always stuff going on there facebook.com slash guys page. We're also on Twitter at politics guys. And if you haven't subscribed to the show already, we would really appreciate it. If you could do that, that helps us out. And uh, if you let other people know, that would be great as well. The executive producers of the politics guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fisherman, and Andra Masker. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.